in order to understand our history, you need to be able to read. <laughs> mm-hmm. And like, we need to be spending more time talking about, do our kids know how to read? Do they know that they understand math, right? You don't know you're getting ripped off, for instance, by a subprime mortgage, if you don't know math. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Robbie Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Ricky, I'm coming to you once again from sunny California. Uh, Just for those keeping track, I flew across the country back to New York, but now I'm back again in LA to see my Buffalo Bills open the NFL season against the Los Angeles Rams. It's bright and early over there for you. What is it, like 7.30? Yeah, it's it's beautiful. I'm in one of these high rises in Santa Monica and I can see the beach and you know, I um, it was a torturous morning because preparing for this podcast, just, and I could see people surfing from my window, and I'm sadly not able to get out there. It's a hard knock life for you, I see. It's tough. That's it's really very tough. tough. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it's particularly tough, Ricky, uh, for some of our kids out there. We got 50 million kids who are throwing on their Elmo backpacks and dragging themselves to the bus stop. This week, it's back-to-school time, which for us is warranting a very special back-to-school episode. And so today, we're going to tackle some big questions around education, starting with a new series from the New York Times that asks a simple question and an expansive question, which is, what is school for? We'll debate some of the answers that they got back, then we'll turn to the nation's report card, which presents a bleak look at the extent and severity of COVID learning loss. And then FIRE is out with an annual college free speech ranking, and we'll see whose alma mater came out on top there. And finally, we'll check in on a mom in Arizona who's become a cause for free-range parenting advocates around the country. And so we got a lot to talk about, but let's start with this New York Times series of essays. So these, these essays asked, you know, what school for? The answers range from everyone, economic mobility, care, wasting time, learning to read, connecting with nature, merit, hope, making citizens, parent activism. Ricky, which of these stood out to you? Um, I think a variety of them were pretty interesting, but the wasting time and money one particularly, um, I, I had seen the author of that article be interviewed about his book on Reason Magazine, and he kind of has a libertarian tilt, um, perhaps to an extreme, but Robbie, <laughs> Robbie, what do you, what did, what did you make of it? Well, in a weird way, he's making a form of the argument I, I presented on my radical ideas a couple months ago when I said that we should consider giving kids and families the option to just receive a check for the amount of money that they would otherwise, like the, the system would spend on educating them. And mm-hmm. it's really a thought exercise more than a proposal, but he's really making the proposal. And this is Brian Kaplan, who's a professor of economics at George Mason University. He wrote a book called The Case Against Education. And like a side note, this is a, a case in point in why if you want to be an academic who sells books, just make a pretty radical claim. And his claim could be boiled down to three points, and these are this is how he summarizes it in the essay. First, everyone leaves school eventually. Second, most of what you learn in school doesn't matter after graduation. Third, human beings soon forget knowledge that they even did learn in school. And so he comes out the other side of this saying, right now our education system is essentially high-priced babysitters, and the sort of skill, knowledge, and all that is overrated and you know, he then has a series of radical proposals. I think in general, he he doesn't believe in compulsory education as we see it. He favors 
school choice for reasons that are different than I do. Like I'm mm-hmm. a I'm a proponent of school choice because I believe in the value of education. He believes in school choice, I think, because he doesn't really take it seriously. Uh, you're you know you are you know as we know a libertarian, but I think even you had a reaction to when I presented this as a radical idea. Where do you come out on this essay? I definitely am in the voucher camp and in the allowing people to use the tax money that would be spent on their child's education on their child's education as they see fit, but not necessarily just handing over a check period and saying, you know, you can play video games all day long. Um, but I would say I'm I'm sympathetic to a lot of the arguments here that a lot of what we're learning is irrelevant, that we forget a lot of it. But I think the fact that you can't necessarily recall like a scientific fact immediately when you're 40 right. doesn't necessarily mean that a lot of the like fundamental learning skills and cognitive skills that are laid in school are were important and continue to inform how you think, even if you lose the factoids and the information. But I would say to me, that case that he's making is more of a, a case for... K to eight is one thing, but then in high school, as you get older, I think there is room to say a lot of this hyper-specialized stuff that kids know for sure they're not going to pursue, like like high-level math or all the major sciences to for a full year. Like I, I think that there's a, a decent case to be made that we could fill some of the slots in high school for kids to take more um take more applicable classes and courses i mean right before the show we were laughing because you asked me an interest rate question and i don't i i I won't let's not go back and test me on it because i'm just gonna skip that entirely but like i think i probably should have learned more about personal finances and i agree with him that it is a waste of time and money to be teaching kids like trigonometry when they're 17 when they don't know how interest rates work yeah i i agree with you on that And, and by the way you know Hold on to your seats, people. That math question will Skip come it. back nope. in, in a nope. later part of this. No, nope. <laughs> the you know he he argues. Hey, here he, he uses a couple of examples. He says, you know, if you ask people to name the three branches of government, or are electrons smaller than atoms, or do antibiotics kill viral viruses as well as bacteria, they can't answer those questions. And he's right about that. But then again, there's a situation sense you get, like. Even if you don't know that electrons are smaller than atoms, you're generally aware of how, you know, particles work and, you know, matter works in gen- you're just you're vaguely aware that there are electrons, there are protons, and that there are certain properties of 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 matter that, you know, relate to like for instance, if you're a carpenter or you're, you know, a mechanic or something, you have a a general sense about what things are around you. And then the question like, do antibiotics kill viruses as well as bacteria? You don't really need to know whether it's viruses or bacteria. You just have to generally know that there are things called antibiotics that can help you. Or the three branches of government is probably less important than knowing that we are a democracy and, you know, there are certain founding principles and, you know, ways of interacting that, you know, that go back to the beginning of our society. It was designed for a particular reason, right? And we have a certain civic obligation is more important than being able to name it. Now it is embarrassing that we can't, that people can't name those. Mm, I think that one's definitely the most damning (laughs) of the examples that he names. Like I, I think that civics education is something that needs to be emphasized more than 
the other examples of of what antibiotics do and how big an electron is relative to an atom. Well, that gets to one of the more popular essays, Ricky, which is this essay from Heather McGee and Victor Ray, which I think gets to the civics question. It's a little more of like a CRT-oriented civics case rather than like on the basis of like like learning the three branches of government. This is an argument in response to anti-CRT bills, more or less. Um, but they make the case here that civics education and school should be about making citizens, making Americans, and that that requires teaching the American uh, spirit, civics, what it means to be an American with different types of people around you in a rich way. And they point to 36 states with 137 different proposed bills that are limiting to different degrees, uh, teaching about race, gender, and certain aspects of American history. Here's a quote from them. Contemporary attacks on teaching true history are authoritarian attempts to impose sanitized curriculum and that freedom comes from having the tools to comprehend a range of good and bad experiences. They make the case for finding new and different heroes in history and delving into what they see as like an un- unfiltered overview of of our past. And so, Ravi, what did you make of that piece? Yeah, you know, and I've interviewed Heather McGee about her book before. I have a lot of respect for her. I, But I do think that they miss a couple big things here. And there's a, a great essay by Matthew Iglesias that we will cite, that we'll put in our show notes, where he, he basically goes through line by line the McGee and Ray essay and set, and raises a couple of interesting points. And the thrust of what Iglesias is saying is schools should be about teaching basic skills. So he actually, in a way, addresses both of these two essays mm-hmm. that we've talked about already. And as case in point, he he takes Heather McGee's book, which is called The Sum of Us, and runs it through a Lexile level test to say, all right, what grade level is this text? And it's anywhere from you know, 10th grade to over 13th grade reading level. So it could be potentially a college level reading level. And then he says the median American reads at a fifth or sixth grade level. So right now, and then he looks at other texts that are part of, you know, the sort of canon of, you know, speaking truth about America, like Coates's case for reparations is, is a ninth grade level. Richard Rothstein's color of law is somewhere between 14th and a 16th grade level. And Iglesias' point is, in order to understand our history, you need to be able to read. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And like, we need to be spending more time talking about, uh, do our kids know how to read? Do they know, do they understand math, right? You don't know you're getting ripped off, uh, for instance, by a subprime mortgage, if you don't know math. And if you don't know, for instance, how interest rates work, which gets to the question, uh, Ricky, that, that I asked you earlier, we're and not, this is a question. Definitely from not this, going to. <laughs> to <laughs> I'm not going to ask you to answer it. Here. There's this uh, woman named Anna Marie Lusardi who did a ton of research about financial literacy, and gave this question to people, which is: Let's say you have $200 in a savings account, and the account earns 10% interest per year. How much would you have in the account at the end of two years? Only 18% of people got this right. Why is that important? Because in order to answer that question, yes, you have to know basic math, right? What's 10% of 200, right? And then what's 10% of 220? And and what you get at the end of that is a, not only just a computational knowledge, but a recognition that compound interest works in mysterious ways and actually, you know, grows in ways that your mind doesn't wrap, you know, it doesn't comprehend unless you know the math, 
right? And mm-hmm. that's just not an esoteric thing. That is the difference between, you know, somebody who gets ripped off or not uh, on their mortgage or their credit card statement, et cetera. And so I do think this matters, and I'm with Iglesias that we need to get the basic skills right if our society is going to function properly. Well, you have absolutely no way to check me on that, but I would have gotten that right had I told you my answer, but it took me longer than I'm, <laughs> than I'm uh, willing to admit. And I am definitely a Gen Zer who was not taught any of this stuff, like at all, period, at all. I, I figured that out when I started like dealing with money and bank accounts on my own. And it's, it's crazy because I went to great schools. None of that was required. And nutrition, and there's so many other really important things about just being a human being that we totally skip. But anyways, I digress. Um, one issue that I I have with this article is um, something that uh, my co-author, um, uh, the book that I'm working on right now, Greg Lukianoff, has pointed out who, you know, he's a liberal and he is, um, I think, very politically reasonable and listens to both sides in a way that I, I really admire. And his point on the CRT stuff is that there's legitimate concerns on both sides. And when you say, there are 137 bills. Well, some of them are. I've counted two both sides here, Ricky, already. So. Well, there's there are two sides to the. I would say to the CRT <laughs> debate here, pretty much. I I think the point. His point. I'm quoting him. He's saying that both sides here are talking past each other, and there are 137 bills. Some of them are ridiculously vague. Others are very tailored to specific concerns that people and parents have about how CRT or different versions of of so-called CRT is being taught in school. And I think that there, you can you can kind of appreciate that there is a legal concern about potentially authoritarian kind of intrusions into how history is taught and what can and cannot be taught that I certainly personally disagree with. I think exposing as many ideas as possible is a healthy and good thing for society. While there's also legitimate concerns about how some of this stuff ends up manifesting itself in schools and affinity groups yeah. and um, like, you know, the developmental appropriateness of different aspects of of wrestling with history and and when when is this appropriate? And I think that, you know, I, I agree with Greg that everyone's talking past each other on this issue frequently. And yeah. this article feels a little bit like that to me just because I didn't see the counter argument of saying like, yeah, there have been some examples of things that we disagree with. Yeah, I, I do think that this gets to what my version of this essay would look like. And I'm curious to how you would have written this essay. You know, to me, there was an essay uh, by Steven Pinker in 2014 called The Trouble with Harvard. And in this essay, he gives the clearest distillation of the role of schools that I found. He was talking about university setting, but I think this would be true definitely of certain parts of the K-12 system, especially the high school. And the... And as background, this, I think, addresses Iglesias's and your critique of the McGee essay, which is we're spending too much time on the content of what people are reading and not the skills and processes and just general values we're teaching people about how to even go about the world and attain knowledge. So what Pinker writes is on top of knowledge within the school system, and he has a whole paragraph about the kinds of knowledge that he wants students to learn. 
He says, on top of this knowledge, a liberal education should make certain habits of rationality second nature. Educated people should be able to express complex ideas in clear writing and speech. They should appreciate that objective knowledge is a precious commodity and how to distinguish vetted fact from superstition, rumor, and unexamined conventional wisdom. They should know how to reason logically and statistically, avoiding the fallacies and biases to which the untutored human mind is vulnerable. They should think causally rather than magically and know what it takes to distinguish causation from correlation and coincidence. They should be acutely aware of human fallibility, most notably their own, and appreciate that most people who disagree with them are not stupid or evil. Accordingly, they should appreciate the value of trying to change minds by persuasion rather than intimidation or demagoguery. That to me is the best statement I've ever heard about the role of school. In terms of my response to this question, I think that the role of school should be different for different people. Uh, I think that there's a fundamental kind of set of building blocks that everyone should develop and and certain skills and certain methods of thinking and rationalizing that are standard at a younger age. But then I think that we can also trust high schoolers. They're old enough at a certain point that they know if they want to go into a general STEM field or a general here or there. And I think that allowing kids to pave their own path and actually take some ownership over what they're learning at developmentally appropriate times is a way to get them to take ownership over their education, to pick practical skills if they're not planning to go go to college and they'd rather know how like basic bank accounts work or or how to take care of their body and their health going forward and the most cutting edge science there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's that's super healthy. And I also think like those who know my own story of not going finishing my degree, like at, at a higher education level as well, we should be destigmatizing different paths in the ways that people want to carve their own path because I think education should be very, very personal. And the older that you get, the more subjective my answer to the question of what school is for becomes. Yeah, and and this is this essay almost inadvertently makes a case for school choice, right? These series of essays, because if so many people have so many different beliefs about what school is, it's not a monolith, yeah. really. Uh, we don't all agree on what it is, then we should offer parents the choice whenever possible. Obviously, if you live in the wilderness of Alaska, your choices are more limited, although technology can really help you now access different kinds of learning. Um, But in most cities, we should be able to give parents the option to choose amongst a bunch of different options. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of these essays deal with the question of basic skills. We talked a couple weeks ago about this, you know, startling data in this Education Next essay about how actually students have been, uh, you know, making improvements in basic skills uh, over the past few decades in ways that seem counterintuitive. But we, we attached a whole bunch of ca- caveats to that that were issues with the data. We will cite that in our show notes. But there's actually, and in, in that segment, we alluded to the fact that, well, maybe all this so-called progress that students have made over the past few decades, you know, what is, a lot of that data was pre-COVID. Now we have data from the COVID era this is from NAEP, the National Assessment of Educational Progress, and they paint a bleak portrayal of what the pandemic has done for elementary school students. This data pertains to nine-year-olds, which are students in the fourth grade. This is the what we call the so-called nation's report card, and this just is bad bad news across the board, Ricky. We're talking about decades-long positive trends that have been reversed. Mm-hmm. This is a 500-point scale. Math scores dropped seven points. Reading score slipped five points. Uh, this is the largest dip, Ricky, in the 30 years on this measure. 
Yeah, and the most disturbing aspect to me here is if you look at it broken down by like deciles and different achievement levels, every group is going down, but the kids that were already at the bottom have gone down by far the most. And what the reason that we've had such great growth over the past couple decades is not because the kids at the top are achieving more and more and more every year. It's because the disparities that we had in student achievement have been narrowing considerably. And now they've just opened back up, essentially, which is so regressive, so disturbing. And unfortunately, the people that were least medically endangered by this pandemic have been burdening the the consequences and the, the backtracking of their educational progress here is something that will have lifelong consequences for them. It's it's really heartbreaking. Yeah, Ricky, I think this is particularly damage, damning. And I and if you remember from the previous data that we we're talking about, it actually were the most vulnerable students that were in some ways struggling in late high school in that data. So mm-hmm. I think what we were looking at in the last set of data that we had was that, all right, some of the early K-12 stuff was looking pretty good, but a lot of it gets erased by the time you get to high school, later years of high school, and that was particularly true of the most vulnerable students we have. And this gets to the question of what is school for, right? And why I'm with Iglesias and a lot of other people to say, let's get the basics right. Like You could say you want kids to be great citizens. You could say you want them to be creative and innovative and all that, but you gotta you gotta know some basic stuff in order to interact with this world. And I think th- there was an interview the New York Times did with a parent that we've talked to, Shiva Raj, who was one of the the parents who took on the San Francisco school board. And we did a, a whole uh, episode of regressives about that fight to recall the school board, where Shiva Raj and a couple other parents started this movement and successfully recalled that school board. He was interviewed by the New York Times, and I think he gives a, a a pretty clear call to action about like, all right, what are we even doing here with schools? A lot of what I see from school tracks back to my own upbringing. I grew up in extreme poverty in India, living on top of a factory where my dad worked as a security guard. My parents really struggled to put me through school because government-run schools in India are pretty bad. And so if you have to get a good education, you have to put your kids through private school and pay for it. And I know they really, really struggled every day of their life to be able to give me that education. And without that education, I wouldn't even be here talking to you guys. Right? And for me, at the foundational level, what school is, is this opportunity to bridge some of that gap, to give every kid a chance at a successful life. And so interestingly, he uses the term bridge the gap in this interview, which coincidentally is the name of a program that Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin just rolled out in response, something in response to this data, but certainly alongside this data being released. Youngkin released this program both aimed at uh, addressing students who fall behind academically, but also the teacher shortage in the state. With schools being closed for an extended and unnecessary period of time, we in fact saw learning loss grow. It is a moment for us to bring transparency and real information to each student. It's a moment for us collectively to work together with individual learning loss plans. Ricky, just to give you a few bullet points about what Yunkin and, you know, longtime listeners and all this, I haven't been the biggest fan of him on a lot of issues, but I do think these measures that he outlined make a lot of sense. 
uh, and are going to do a lot of good for kids. This includes issuing teaching and renewal licenses for teachers who are licensed out of state to address the teacher shortage, coordinating with the Virginia retirement system to allow retired teachers to fill K-12 positions, you know, calling on the education and labor secretaries and other finance officials within the state to reduce red tape in getting teachers licenses, doing targeted targeted uh, teacher recruitment and retention bonuses. Those are a lot of those things I just mentioned are very hard to do for Democrats because sometimes they run up against uh, teachers unions who sometimes, for reasons that are you know you know very confusing to people who don't follow these things, often doing things like letting retired teachers teach for more money or getting bonuses and stuff run up against the expectations of teachers unions. That was just about teachers. There's a whole separate effort, this bridging the gap piece about students, which has, you know, basically incentivizes and supports uh, schools and districts to use individualized student data to, you know, urgently address students who are falling behind. Taken together, I think this is really sensible. Yeah, I mean, and I think this is precisely why he's in office in the first place. Um, Education has been a huge driver of of places growing more and more red. And I think that's a reflection of just the public sentiment around public schooling right now. Um, Only 28% of Americans this year say they have great or quite a lot of confidence in public schools, which is down considerably from 41% in 2020 at the start of the pandemic. It's it's shocking, but it's also not surprising when you see that following something like like this nation's report card. Um, When it came out, Randy Weingarten tweeted that article or an article about it out and said, thankfully, after two years of disruption from a pandemic that killed more than one million Americans, schools are already working on helping kids recover and thrive. And sure, that sounds really great if you didn't have the case study for what happens when the free market actually tries to do that and you don't have private schools open right across the street from public schools and a like control group experiment of what happens when you close kids down and how the private school kids were continuing to outpace their public school peers who have been unfairly just locked up in their homes and and forced by effectively teachers unions that refuse to open up to continue to struggle and to continue disparities. So I think, you know, the optics of how Youngkin is responding to news like this versus how the teachers unions are, are only going to continue to degrade our our faith in public school systems. Yeah. And I think this gets to uh, the question around critical race theory uh, that you uh, you raised earlier, because Yunkin and and I don't love the way he he framed the critical race theory debate in every way. But if you look at Shivaraj and then you look at the Thomas Jefferson High School parents that we talked about a few weeks ago, these are parents who are reacting to things that are you know d- that are being lumped together with critical race theory, and I think that like both proponents of critical race theory and opponents of critical race theory are largely just agreeing that we're going to use this catch-all term to, to yeah. describe a bunch of things. And in the case of San Francisco and in the case of Virginia with the Thomas Jefferson parents who became young kids supporters largely, um, they're largely immigrants. And you know, Raj talks about the immigrant experience, the parents that Thomas Jefferson talk about their immigrant experience. And they have a particular view of the role of skills knowledge and meritocracy within the school system. They tend to support uh, magnet schools, which are under attack in both of those cities and also in places like New York. They they are opposed to certain race-based admissions policies, et cetera. They're not the types that I can tell 
necessarily that are like, hey, I don't want my kids learning about the role of slavery in society. They're more likely like, hey, there's an assault on meritocracy and teaching skills and using standardized testing in schools, and they're appalled by it. They're also appalled by the school closures that have happened. That's what Raj's uh, main issue was in San Francisco. And this data from NAEP comes out alongside data that came out that shows that uh, of the nation's 25 largest school districts, those who are in remote learning at least half of 2020, 2021, have spent an average of roughly 15% of their relief funds from the American Rescue Plan. So they're not urgently moving. Like the way you see Youngkin kind of urgently moving here. Now, now to be clear, he's just rolling out this plan, so he hasn't spent the money yet. But a lot of these places like Long, uh, Los Angeles Unified, uh, where I am right now, didn't start spending any of their money until this fall. Well, speaking of some other new data that's come out, we've been definitely in your wheelhouse here with primary and high school education, um, but there's a lot of new data coming out of the higher ed world as well. Um, the organization that I work for, FIRE, came out with their annual free speech rankings yesterday, I believe. It's their third annual set of rankings. They spoke to 45,000 students or they did surveys with them um, from 200 universities. And the goal here was to inform prospective students on what schools are the most hospitable to free speech and free expression, and also hopefully to pressure schools that are not doing as well to actually change and respond to their rankings. Um, but they used metrics like student sentiment about speech on campus, um, the state of speech codes at various places, how many speakers have been disinvited, and how many professors have been sanctioned in order to rank schools from the best to the worst. And um, at the top was UChicago, which doesn't really come as a surprise to people who are familiar with the Chicago principles. Yeah, actually, everyone else in the top five is a, a state school aside or a public school aside from UChicago. So, um, you know, the yeah. First Amendment is alive and well at schools that are actually um, bound by it. But at the bottom, we have Columbia and UPenn and Georgetown. A lot of really great schools down at the bottom that... Yep are not doing so well in the free speech realm. Yeah, my alma maters uh, didn't perform well. Binghamton was 123, even though it's a state school. Yale was 198. You know, 123 is, quote, slightly below average, and, and 198 for Yale is poor. This doesn't surprise me. Both of those schools have had Columbia high Columbia was issues. abysmal. was the only school to be rated abysmal. Oh, the, the word was abysmal that they attached to it? Mm-hmm. Um, so I have some questions about this. So, you know, they send out these surveys, Right. Mm -hmm. And they ask students, all right, do you feel like you self-censor? Are you more likely to censor other students? There was there was something weird about this data, which is that the majority of students say that they're self-censoring. But then 62 percent of students said it's acceptable if students shout down speakers to prevent them speaking on campus. And majority said campus speakers with non-liberal viewpoints should not be allowed on campus. So they're both saying they're self-censoring and they want to censor other people. Am I reading this correctly? Yeah. Um, so well, this is the most um, expansive survey of its type ever done on these sort of sentiments. 45,000 is a lot of students to have respond here. But I mean, basically what you're pointing out here is that being a liberal is very illogical. Like you can <laughs> believe that there are fights that are that you want to go wage, but then also be sitting on your hands because the people that are even more extreme than you are fighting even less incendiary views. So yeah, I mean- I feel like we have our show clip for the front end of this episode. Being a liberal is illogical. 
Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I mean, there's students who who might not be in a extreme activist position, but who might believe that because a belief of theirs is so precious, it's worth shouting down a speaker or potentially even responding violently. But then they feel that the more extreme fringes of their campus might return that favor if they have some some beliefs that. Well, I do want to say that the the conservatives aren't great here either, though. Forty four percent of conservative students agreed with the shout down a speaker. No, no, I know. Um, it's super disappointing. But still 44 is high. Versus 76%. So they're a little better, but that still is awful. It's awful. It's so bad. And one in five students say that violence is at least sometimes acceptable for yeah, stopping speech on campus, which is ridiculous. Like, I can't even believe that. And, and that some of our best schools in the country are on the bottom of this list and are clearly not teaching students what the word liberal means and what open debate and tolerance is, is just shocking. It's shocking to me. You do see regional differences in this data. If you look at the rankings, what you see is a lot of Southern Midwestern states, Western states, like, you know, the sort of Rocky Mountain West versus like the California and Oregon and Washington West, you see differences there. And that dovetails, mm -hmm. there's this article by Samuel Abrams in Real Clear Education, where he looked at the student bodies of some of these universities and 71% of New England college students identify as liberal. And that's that's high compared to what Politico showed for just Gen Z, like which is like the closest approximation I could find, where 38% of Gen Z identifies as liberal, 27% moderate, 18% conservative. But then if you mm -hmm. go to the mountain region, so the eight states that are like more mixed ideologically, and they also have rural areas with growing cities like Denver and Phoenix, there's way more balance, and it almost like perfectly matches what Politico found. So a quarter of students are moderate and in the middle. More than a third identifies conservative and 41% liberal. So more than a third conservative, 41% liberal. So we're talking about like those states seem to be getting at more of a balance that reflects where tr students truly are. Yeah, I mean, I think students are definitely different from Gen Z as a whole. And there's um, definitely an attraction to education that tends to just be slightly more liberal and that's that's fine and that's kind of natural I think in our in our environment but it's an interesting conversation I've had a few times with people at fire about how how do you rank a school like for instance Hillsdale College where it's a clearly conservative school almost everyone in there is conservative and then you ask them yeah, questions like about like are yeah. you comfortable with um with speaking your mind and everyone says yeah because everyone agrees and so there's like there's definitely challenges in comparing these schools as one-to-one -one because they have very different makeups like smith college is 66 liberals to everyone conservative so you know wow. liberal students are probably feeling pretty comfortable there and that one conservative who feels really uncomfortable um, isn't going to really pull their weight in the rankings. And so it's, it's, it's a tough question. You know, there's certain metrics that pull different schools down. Like the big issue for Columbia was that they sanctioned like seven professors over the past couple of years. And so that pulled yeah. them down dramatically. But yeah, it's a, I mean, it's not a perfect science. Yeah, I do like these. I like well done rankings. I, I talked about a couple of weeks ago, the Obama you know, abandoned effort to rank colleges on the basis of affordability and creating majors that society actually needs. Mm -hmm. Hopefully we can get that data because then if you were to take data like that and you're a student looking to pick your university, like Binghamton, where I went to undergrad, does really well in those rankings. Obama, I think, actually announced that effort at a SUNY school. 
State University of New York. So I'd be like, all right, great. I'm a kid. I'm a student. I'm like, this is going to get me a major that I'm going to be able to get a job at. This is a university that's trying to control costs. But then I look at the fire rankings and I'm like, well, I do want to go to a school where I could express my mind. Binghamton is not doing so well on that. Maybe I'll look at a state school somewhere else, like Kansas State, for instance, right? And I actually think like giving students more of this data will allow them to seek out the places that are more hospitable. And like, look, like at a certain point, the people who don't want ideological diversity will go to Liberty University or they'll go to Smith or Oberlin or whatever, right? And mm -hmm. that's part of school choice too, right? It gets a little tricky once you start talking about, uh, you know, government-run schools, state schools. But by and large, I think that self-selecting is probably the best we could hope for. Yeah, definitely. Well, Ricky, let's talk about one final issue involving our kids, uh, which is parenting and We've covered, I covered with Corey back about a year ago, or probably a little under a year ago, this concept of free-range parenting. We talked about this parent in Arizona who was arrested for, you know, what's it we felt at the time was an overreaction. Can you catch us up on what this case was about and some of the new developments over the past few weeks? Yeah, so this is a case coming out of Arizona that spans back to Thanksgiving of 2020 when a mother who's identified only as Sarah to protect her identity um, decided to leave her seven-year-old son and a five-year-old friend at a park nearby a store um, because she wanted to go buy some food. And the grocery store at this point in time in the pandemic was discouraging large crowds and unnecessary um like people coming through the aisles. And so she left her kid there on their own, totally fine, no, no, no safety concerns. There was an acquaintance nearby. She said, if there's an emergency, go tap on their shoulder and tell them. And around 30 minutes later, a friend found her in the store and said, the police are, are with your kid. And so she went to rushing to the park to see what was going on. And there was no suspicion uh, or accusation of danger or neglect, but she was arrested on suspicion of endangering a minor because of what theoretically could have happened. So essentially, the police are saying, like, you're endangering your kid by letting them play in this park under these circumstances. And even though there are no explicit laws that were preventing that, um, the minor delinquency laws in Arizona are very vague. And so this could be dubbed an act of negligence. And even though the police department ultimately dropped her charges in response or in exchange for her doing a parenting class, she was still put on the central reg registry as an unfit parent, as designated by the um, Department of Child Safety that runs independently from the police and from the regular court is a little Kafka-esque in Arizona. Um, there's only one administrative law judge who has the power to determine if she's parentally fit and there's a director that could overrule that judge if they chose to and so there's movement in this case right now um, just in late august um, she's being defended by the goldwater institute and the pacific legal foundation and a superior court judge um, in her county temporarily blocked her from being listed um, in the short term and the long-term outcome of this case is yet to be determined but this is just one of a ton of examples of you know leaving kids at home or letting them walk from school alone or dropping them off at a playground to how that is being criminalized and that there are states with what some people are arguing are punitive laws for childhood independence so yeah and this is a trend we see around the country so 
2015 in Florida, two parents were charged with felony child neglect when they were delayed getting home, and their 11-year-old son played basketball in a yard for 90 minutes with a neighbor who called the police, uh, and the kid was placed in foster care for a month, and the parents had to attend play therapy and a parenting class. Uh, the parents had no history of neglecting their children. There was a 2011 case of a parent who ran into Target uh, and left her kid in a car on a cool day also had similar issues. And so this is troubling and something that we see in states. Uh, if you look at some of the data by Let Grow, in an advocacy group that uh, you know whose author I think we'll talk about in a second, it's weird because it's not red or blue, right? Like there's Florida's got bad laws, Texas has yeah. bad laws, well, Massachusetts has bad laws, uh, and Jersey. New Jersey has bad laws. But then there are other states that have great laws that are both liberal and conservative. And, you know, I had a conversation with the cover, the governor of Colorado uh, recently and asked him about his effort to actually narrow the definition of child neglect. Um, he's trying to go in the opposite direction of a lot of these states. And this is Governor Jared Polis. So what we had happening, not just in Colorado, but in other places, is like you had eight-year-olds playing in a, in a neighborhood playground and the parents weren't with them. And you had people calling child protective services, like unattended eight-year-old. But meanwhile, their parent, who was like two blocks away in the house, had sent them there. And, and that is okay. That's actually the way most people grew up in the 19, like 50s and 60s and 70s. You know, like maybe I was in the transitional period in the 80s where it was like going the other way, but it is still okay. And there are many parents who want to build that sense of responsibility individuals and would say, go play on the playground, you know, and come back by dark. And those should not be pulled up by child services, right? They have real work to do preventing abuse. Before he started talking about the law, he articulated a theory of parenting that was true when he was a kid growing up in the 80s and certainly was true when I was growing up in the 90s where parents just kind of let their kids roam around. And mm -hmm. there's a term now for this uh, that comes from a book, and, and that term is free-range parenting. Can you explain to us what this term means? Yeah, so um, the founder of this sort of movement is a woman named Lenore Skinnyzy. And so she kind of went viral back in 2008 um, when she wrote an op-ed in the New York Sun about letting her nine-year-old ride the subway alone. And she was dubbed America's worst mom and went on a kind <laughs> of media circuit embracing that label. So um, here she is more than a decade ago now. Izzy would like to drive a Ferrari, smoke a cigar. Have a martini. And, and, yeah, if he could. <laughs> yeah. So this was the one I was letting him do. Letting him because for weeks on end, he wouldn't stop pestering her. That's why I kept on asking, can I go by myself? Can I go by myself? So a few weeks ago, mother and son split up after a shopping trip to Bloomingdale's. And the kid, armed with a subway map, a fare card, and 20 bucks just in case, boarded the downtown Lexington Avenue number six train for home. Lenore's pretty tough, and she just took that label in stride and used that publicity to popularize an alternative to the kind of rising helicopter parenting that I think was probably more evident in my generation than yours, Ravi. Um, but she started the Free Range Kids movement and has since started the Let Grow um, organization that is that educates parents and schools about child autonomy and also advocates for changing some of the laws that are preventing children from doing their thing and um, yeah. allowing situations like what happened in Arizona occur. But some core tenets of her philosophy are kids can do them, do things themselves. Free play is fundamental. Children are resilient by nature and letting go as a parent is an act of bravery. So that kind of gives you a sense of where she's coming from. It's kind of, it's returning. It just kind of 
turning the time back to a few decades ago when parents didn't have computers to just like plop in front of their kids and say, okay, like you're safe in the basement, go and play a video game all day long. And also maybe a time before the milk carton kid kind of panic about kidnapping and child safety occurred. Um, so she's she's kind of restoring some more old school parenting values and letting kids scrape their knees, screw up, learn from their failures and and ultimately hopefully thrive. Yeah, and what you're alluding to is this this sort of phenomenon that happened in the 80s. There's the Eton Pats case in New York, the Adam Walsh case in Florida. These were high-profile child abduction cases that I think because of some of the changes to, to television and media, they went from, you know, they, they were on the side of milk cartons, they're on TV. Adam Walsh's dad started America's Most Wanted television show. There was the creation of the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. And some of these things are welcome developments, right? Like we do want a national conversation when a kid goes missing. We want a database for this. But it led to a certain panic that happened. And strangely, as the data about abductions was going down, uh, the panic around it and the the sort of, I think, the parents' perceptions of the amount of kids getting abducted went in the opposite direction of the data, which you know can happen sometimes. And, you know, there are even movies. Like, I remember Kindergarten Cop when I was a kid was all about, like, an mm-hmm. abduction. Uh, and so this was happening in t- in tandem. You know, we're getting better at protecting our kids while people are thinking we're getting worse. And then, like, we get to this overparenting phase. And what I would say, Ricky, like, when I was a kid, we were allowed to – I was probably on the tail end of, of the free-range parenting that happened. Like, parents would work. We would just kind of roam around. And we would for sure get in trouble. But then when I went to college, after I survived all that stuff, I was independent and able to make my own choices. So it's a kind of gamble parents have to make. But I, but overparenting itself is a danger. Being overprotective is a danger to your kids because you don't prepare them for life. Uh, and I think that's something some of our new parents need to, to, to grapple with. Yeah, definitely. And my generation um, has been kind of the test case of what happens when when the road is paved for you by your parents and they're so hyper involved that they don't let you ever screw up and learn from your own mistakes. Um, I mean, we're seeing for a, a whole host of reasons, but I think this is one of them, skyrocketing rates of anxiety and depression. And studies have shown that very intense helicopter parenting, even though there are the the pluses of getting good advice and getting more emotional support from your parents than maybe you otherwise would, um, it's associated with lower mental well-being, rates of depression and anxiety go up, um, emotional functioning suffers, decision-making suffers, academic functioning suffers, which is actually kind of ironic because a lot of these parents are motivated by getting their kid into the best school and they're very they tend to be you know higher income and more able to be involved in their kids successes and they're trying to put them on a path to success but what they've found is that these kids aren't developing cognitive flexibility where you you screw up you did something wrong you learn from your mistake and then you grow and ultimately that's lowering academic performance in kids that are um, like very micromanaged because they're more susceptible to just reward-based motivation and getting that a rather than actually like building up their own self-esteem and having internal motivation and so they're academically suffering too but for me the most important thing is that it's also associated with a lack of independence and ineffective coping skills which i think my generation is carrying with them into adulthood and it's really unfortunate yeah you, you, when you said you know pave the road it reminded me of the van jones quote he said i'm, I'm yeah. not going to pave the jungle for you put on some boots and learn how to deal with adversity mm-hmm. and you know i think that's 
that's where I hope we're heading now. I hope so. Well, there's, I think there's definitely more realization today that that test case of, of what a moral panic gone too far around child safety has caused. And, you know, the pendulum swings on these sort of societal things. And I, I think that there are more and more people waking up to the fact that there is a generation of anxious, coddled kids that are not launching properly into adult life as a result. And so um, hopefully more more conversations like this can be had to kind of moderate us back to a point where we can be safe, but we can also scrape our knees sometimes. Well, I think that's all we have today. Ricky, uh, shout out to all the parents and kids and educators out there getting back to work. And I'm wishing the Bills uh, a very successful opener to the NFL season. Ricky, I know you'll be on the edge of your seat. Totally. I'll wait for your report on that. <laughs> well, listeners, make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Hit that like button. Uh, share our podcast with your friends. Tell them what you like about it. And we'll be right back here next week, next Tuesday. The Lost Debate is the flagship show of the Lost Debate Network. Our executive producer is Michael Hendricks. Research support by Joe Garvey and Ariane Misra. Studio support by Moyo Adeolu. Editing and sound design by Monica Espitia and Joe Engelbrecht. Video editing by Ava Maldonado. 